0: Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine, and thank you for listening to the Captains Collective podcast, brought to you by Skinny Water Culture, Hell's Bay Boatworks, and Orvis Fly Fishing. In today's episode, we sit down with Andy and Nikki Mill and talk about a wide variety of topics, ranging from family and fatherhood to how to learn from our losses and deal with discouragement, and ultimately how to train to win. We also discuss their new podcast that they're doing together where they're interviewing different legends of fishing. This is a great discussion filled with fun stories and helpful insights. We hope that you enjoy. This is The Captain's Collective.
1: <laughs> I'll say it's anything you choose, I think it picks you, you know, it's genetic.
0: Let everything else stop in the world and just be quiet
2: and it's amazing where your mind goes at that point um, and where it doesn't go and sometimes this that quiet space is, is what we need and especially in this day and age.
0: If you have a fly rod in your hand it's this tool that takes you to beautiful places you meet hopefully wonderful people and it's just this cherry on top of this outdoor
1: adventure. When the fish is coming that shot within a shot, that timer start beep beep, 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 beep,
2: beep, 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 No one else knew anything anyway, and it just might definitely making an update here gone along.
0: But so what grandpa and dad would tell me is like, all right, where's the old big trout laying out there? Where's his shaving cream on the water? Where's he been shaving this morning? At? So look for his shaving cream on the water, and that's where he's gonna be. Hey guys, I'm excited to sit down together. Andy, as I've gone through this journey the past year, uh, I've made many mutual friends with you, uh, dating back to my first episode with Harry Spear, and I'm excited to dive more into some of the fun times that you guys had back in the Keys, but I'm also excited to sit down with you and also have your son Nikki on the podcast as well to talk about your most recent project, the Millhouse podcast. Um, Andy, throughout your life, you've had a, a chance to be a part of some pretty awesome projects and be a part of some pretty cool uh, parts of fishing history, and I'd love just to hear about how starting this podcast with your son um, has differed from some of those past projects and maybe in what ways it's been special.
2: Are you talking about the Millhouse Project uh, project as of recent?
0: Yes, yeah, the podcast.
2: Well, yeah, uh, you know, it's completely and totally different. Um, from the fishing experiences, in the fact that Nikki, this is all a brainchild of Nikki's. Uh, he's been requesting over the last five years, hey, what do you think about a podcast? And the last thing I wanted to do is get another job and start doing stuff. And because I'm, I'm an old guy, <laughs> <laughs> I just want to go fishing and kill stuff. Um, but the more I thought about it, I thought, what a great opportunity for you know to for nikki and i to to build something together and that's why the name millhouse came to be because it was not it was multi-dimensional it was us you know the millhouse and at some point down the road it'll be all his but um believe me when i say this is all nikki he he found the cameras he got the mics he built the whole thing he learned how to edit and kudos to him because we've gotten a lot of traction and this would not have happened without, without Nikki. And it's something too, other than just having fun that we're doing at a professional level together. And for me, that's, um, it's really thrilling. Um, I, I love to see the traction we're getting and I love to see the success that Nikki has built with us.
0: What have you found to be the most rewarding part of doing the podcast opposed to maybe some of the works like a passion for tarpon in the past?
2: Well your success is based on your peers and if your peers like what you're doing then that is a sign of success regardless of how much we think we're doing a good job if nobody likes it if nobody sees it nobody listens to it it, it's meaningless but when I talked to when Dustin Huff calls me after he heard the first interview with his dad and he was like all but in tears and and uh, Chad Huff, he too, he said dad, he said Andy, I, I cried when I was listening to the interview with my dad, and then Eric Hurst said I was talking to him last night. He said this podcast is just riveting. Everybody in the Keys is talking about it. And he said I was the first time I heard. I was driving down the road listening, and I started crying. He said I've, I've listened to it no less than twenty times. And he said recently I was in the kitchen preparing some food, and my wife came into the kitchen, and he was, he said I was, he was crying. And his wife said, what are you crying for? You're not that kind of a person." <laughs> so. You know, um, when I hear, you know, some of the old-time guys, you know, too, uh, like Chico Fernandez. I mean, to hear his stories and the way, how well he projected that. And everybody's captivated by the history of these Flats guys. And they're all icons, and they're all the Mount Rushmore of icons. To have them really bear their soul on the Millhouse podcast, that, to me, is it's come full circle because I like fishing. Now we, we know that the audience is listening to these guys through us. We're that medium. And that
0: is to me, a great joy. You guys have done an awesome job with it. Nikki, I'm, I'm curious what has been the most fun part of working with your dad on a project like this?
1: Well, to begin with, um, like my father said, he really did not want to go back to work. Um, he did 81 TV shows around the world um he had a broadcasting career along with you know a great ski career and he traveled all over and was just kind of sick and tired of working he wanted to fish and hunt and do all this stuff and so when i came um to him with this podcast idea that was his biggest concern was going back to work and i made it where i told him it's just going to be a conversation with your buddies um Mm -hmm. just no no more than fish talk and i will do all the behind the scenes i will do all the the production um all you have to do is sit down with your buddies and and chat about what you love and um talk about fun cool stories of what happened in the everglades in florida bay back in the you know 80s and 90s and um i think these stories need to get out and i think you are doing a great job with getting these stories as well um i listen to your podcast you have a great podcast and um you know, the the most fun I have with my dad is just traveling to these destinations and getting these stories and interviews um, from different people, whether it be be Chico Fernandez um, or sitting down with Steve Huff in his garage or hanging with Flip next to his airboat. It's just the camaraderie. And, um, you know, my dad's my best friend. I just love doing everything with him. So,
0: Yeah, I can totally relate to that. And it's one of the things that I love about the podcast, too, is getting a chance to meet the people and... Uh, I've made so many great friends across the state and even outside of the state of Florida. It's been a lot of fun. Andy, a lot of people know you for tarpon fishing, and obviously there's a lot of talk about uh, all those legendary days in the Keys, all the tournaments in the Keys, but I listened to April Vokey's podcast with you, and I thought she did a great job, and you talked some about how you first got involved in the outdoors and how tarpon was something you came across later in life. I'd love just to hear about how you first got involved in the outdoors and then also kind of what some of your first passions were before tarpon.
2: Well, I, at a very young age, I lived in Laramie, Wyoming, and I remember um, shooting or pointing an, uh, a pop gun at ants <laughs> <laughs> with my cowboy boots and my six shoot around my waist, you know, I, I was always kind of like intrigued with guns and bow and arrows and stuff. And then my family moved to Aspen in 1960. And at a very young age, I learned how to fly fish here in Aspen. Uh, Chuck Fothergill, a, a very prominent figure in the world of freshwater fishing. He taught me how to tie flies, but I was riding my bike going to baseball practice when I was around 8, and I saw this fly line going across the air. I had no idea. It was suspended horizontally, and I thought it was really cool, and I rode my bike over there. And Ernie Schwiebert was in town giving a casting clinic to uh, the customers of the country store, Phil Wright's store. So Ernie Schwiebert taught me how to fly cast, you know, a Hall of Famer, a really prominent name in the freshwater world. Chuck Fothergill taught me how to tie flies. So as much as skiing um, were my roots, so was fly fishing. Um, I started tying flies for the local stores when I was like 10 here in Aspen. So I always was on the water in the summer. I'd go to the water before baseball practice. I'd go to practice, go back to the water, and come home late and have leftovers. And that was my routine in the summer. In the winter, I was, you know— Racing down the the side of a mountain, um, you know, trying to be a fast skier. Uh, I didn't get into hunting until later. Mm-hmm. Um, I did kill an elk, you know, at a young age with a with a rifle, and that didn't do much for me. I really did not like the explosion of a gun. And then um, I got into bow hunting. I killed an elk with a bow, and then I was riveted. Mm-hmm. It 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 really I was just so. Uh, enthralled with that because you're speaking to the animal with your bugling and your cow calling and you're convincing a 750 pound animal to come within bow range and then you harvest this thing with a sharp stick and it was just like there's nothing Here. on earth cooler than that um the, the saltwater scene it came late mm-hmm. to me because i was pretty busy you know trying to win olympic medals and stuff like that and then i had a uh, I had a ski show for 20 years, and then I traveled as a broadcaster for the networks. I did. I covered two Olympics uh, for CBS, and then I did all these specials. And then later on, I did a, um, a couple of specials for the Outdoor Life Network, and then they wanted me to host a fishing show, and I was ready for a career change. I was really bored with skiing at that time. It was just a way to make a, a living, but I didn't want to call ski racers. I wanted to be the racer trying to win. So that fa- phase of my life it was yeah I was traveling around and, and seeing a lot of big events but I wasn't in the big events so when I had a chance to go produce fishing shows that was cool because i got to travel the world and, and fish with the, the top captains uh, of their trade whether it be catching blue marlin on fly rods and St. Thomas and giant trevally in the Seychelles and I saw a tarpon bite my fly um on the show uh fly fishing the world with John Barrett in Belize and that was as riveting and as compelling as listening to a bull elk bugle Mm. when I saw that tarpon open his mouth and bite my bug it was like oh my god I've got to do this and that's when Harry Spear came into my life I got down into the Keys um started fishing with Harry 40 to 50 days a year and he kind of groomed me to tournament fishing Mm -hmm. And, uh, that's how I kind of got into, you know, the
0: saltwater tarpon scene. But prior to that, fishing had been a very big part of my life for a long time. And, uh, Harry's become a good friend of mine. He lives in the area that I live in now. And, uh, one of the things I was wondering about that time, because I knew that right when you got introduced to salt, that you spent a lot of time with Harry, what was the biggest transition coming from somebody who didn't have much experience in saltwater and coming into the saltwater world?
2: Well, you know, I could cast pretty well right away. But what Harry showed me, and, and this is, we were talking the other day about mentors. As a skier, I didn't have a great mentor, and I wasn't smart enough to get it on my own. So I, laid a, I made a lot of mistakes. And when you make a mistake as a skier going 80 miles an hour, you end up in a hospital. Um, Harry would show me the fish, but he would not only show me the fish, he would tell me why. Why was I putting the fly here? Watch that animal see see what the fish is doing this is this is what that means. whether he'd be rolling and slapping his tail going right back to the bottom. Harry taught me about the communication that a fish speaks to you if you see that fish, a bone fish if he's tailing, window cast, how to strip the fly, how to slide the fly, how to set the hook. So without, Without mentors and guides, you know, reinventing um, your, you know, your, um, the curve of excellence is pretty flat. You know, it's hard to reinvent the wheel on your own. Guides are expensive, but they're worth their weight in gold. They really are. So my, my gravitational um, climb, or I would say my ascending climb to excellence, was really through Harry's voice. And he really taught me, you know, what to look for and, and, and what kind of language these animals were speaking. And uh, I got to hand it to him. You know, I, didn't, I only fished a couple of tournaments, I think three tournaments with Harry. We, got, we won the Fall Fly Bonefish Tournament. We got second in the spring, and I think we got fourth in the Gold Cup. But, and then he was gone. And I think, you know, I got, at least I got him at the very tail end of his career because I think he was getting pretty burned out of the keys by Mm. then. Yeah. You know, but I I feel very fortunate because my learning curve was was extremely
0: steep because I had the best in the game teaching me. And you talked about, when you were skiing and you would make a mistake and you had to learn from that, it, you would end up in the hospital. In what ways did some of your upbringing in the skiing world and learning from mistakes help you as a young tarpon angler? What were some of the carryovers?
2: The biggest thing was uh, I didn't really learn how to win until the last year of my ski career. I didn't understand. I didn't, I didn't take it as seriously as I should have. And I finally realized after the Olympics of 1980 I finally realized I had to recommit myself, and I trained with the Austrians that fall. Uh, I really got in great shape. I got on some great skis. You know, I went back to Rosenthal. I'd switched ski companies. I got back to Lang boots, and I was one of the best skiers in the world that year. Um, I got fourth in the first uh, second downhill. I broke the course record at Saint Moritz four times before the race. In the race, I came off a big jump, and when I landed, my ski fell off. And it tweaked my knee, and I had to come back to the States and get arthroscopic surgery on my knee. And then I went back to Europe, and I skipped the first two downhills because it was still really sore. And those first two downhills, Garmisch and Kitzbühel, were solid ice. And that really hurt when I skied on ice. And then I went to Vengen and uh, I knew I was going to win that race. But unfortunately— I, um, I came off the last jump way too hot the f- jump was way too big and I, I flew all the way flat probably 150 feet through the air and i caught an edge and it pulled me into a fence and i broke my neck my back and my leg mm. S- so my career was over but when i became a fisherman and when i started to f- see that yeah I, ha- I got it i you know harry taught me i was catching fish and i, knew I was we were catching a lot of fish and we weren't really bragging about anything i was just listening to what everybody else was catching and i knew that we were as good as anybody else and when i finally got into the tournaments i really had a heart to heart it wasn't even acknowledged i knew that i was not going to allow myself to lose i i wanted this as as seriously as i've ever wanted anything in my life i did not sleep for 10 years and um i was i i seriously i, I uh, I don't even know how to, how to put that kind of a commitment into words, but I breathed tarpon hmm. morning, noon, and night, even in the winter. I was tying flies, and just I was crazy about it. And, and you, that was the difference. So that's for, from skiing to fishing, the, the thing I learned that in that transition was, look, you got one chance of doing something well in your life. I was lucky. I had a second
0: chance with fishing. Hmm. And when I had that second chance, I was not going to let it go. And you talked about Harry mentoring you. And I know that you've spent a lot of time with different anglers and guides over the years. I'm curious, what makes a great mentor or a great coach when it comes to fishing?
2: Well, I think it's being very honest too. And a great mentor has got to be as committed as the angler. Um, he, he's, I think he saw in me an athlete that could get it done. Uh, and he knew that he could work with me, and, I, and he had already had great success as a tournament. He was one of the best tournament anglers or guides in the Keys along with Steve Hoff. They were the two of the best. And he had had great success with, with a number of different anglers. You know, Glenn Flutie, he and Glenn won the Gold Cup five years in a row. I mean, they were it, it, unbelievable. So um, a great mentor has got to be honest. Like when I first started mentoring Nicky, um, I was brutally honest with him. And, um, and the, and the, the understanding is that when somebody is really honest, it might sound like somebody might be yelling at you, but they know that mentor knows that if you, if you're strict and stern, like, look, do it this way and you got to do it right now. Let's not be messing around here. And I remember one time Nikki said, you don't have to get so mad or you don't have to yell at me. I said to Nikki, I said, you want to learn fast or you want to learn slow? You know, and that was just my attitude about teaching Nikki. And, you know, it, that took nothing aside from our father and son relationship because that was no longer a father and son relationship. I took it upon, you know, the level that I was his mentor, I was his coach, and I was going to teach this kid how to do it right. And I knew that he could learn fast, but I was adamant. I didn't want to mess it around because. That shot you just had at a big old tarpon come flying by, if you're going to mess it up, we might not have another shot all day. So every shot has got to count.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I was 13 or 14, when I first started getting into this sport, he used to make me cry. <laughs> um, and I used to be like, why do you have to be so rude about it? But looking back, he he wasn't that rude. He was just very stern. It was It was very black and white. And, um, I learned very quick that way.
0: And Nikki, I'm curious too, what have been some of the things that you have learned, not just from your dad, but from some of the friends and people that you've got to meet along the way when it comes to being a great mentor or angler?
1: Um, I I agree with my dad, brutally honest. You got to be honest. Um, what makes a good mentor? Um, well, especially when you're talking about flats fishing. So with the relationship from the angler to the guide, I fish the tournaments with, uh, a kid by the name of captain Eric Hursted. He's out of Homestead, Florida. And I think you need good rapport. You need, um, some commonality outside of fishing as well. Just, you know, it just eases up the day, um, there's there's less pressure throughout the day. You're not always thinking about um, tarpon, you know, shots. You're not always thinking about where to put the fly. You can kind of relax, and when when you talk about other things and um, you you chat about your other passions in life besides you know just what we're doing, which is tarpon fishing, you kind of relax. You let your guard down. I think I fish better, um, and um, you know, just being brutally honest, like if. If you put the fly 10 feet away from the fish and we're fishing really muddy water and the guide needs to have the fly four feet away from the fish, he can't say, you know what, that was a great cast, it just didn't work. You can't be nice about that. you got to say, you know what, that was a little too far ahead. You need to put it closer to the fish. So it's, it's, it's honesty, it really is. You, you, you need to, um, I don't know, how, how would you say that? it's 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 almost one of the
2: things that harry taught me that was really a cardinal rule in the in that in this game of saltwater fly fishing you have one cast one fish you don't have a second cast to make your third or fourth every time you have to recast you might lose the angle to the fish um the fish might feel the presence of a boat. You have to kind of stick the boat or hold the boat in the current. Whatever it is, you have one shot at each fish. And I'll never forget Harry saying that. One shot, one fish. Let's not be messing around. So if I would make a a, a cast and the and the fly was not in the right spot, he'd go, no, 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 no. Get it in there. Get it right now. Go, 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 go. You know, it was like that. It was like, get it in there right now. It's not, you know. And then when I was pulling on a fish and fighting the fish, you call pull, lift that thing, fuck, you know, you know crank, crank that reel drag, um, that handle. It was all about um, basically coaching, but demanding um, that angler to do what, what that mentor wanted you to do. And it, it, emotions are aside, it has nothing to do with emotions, it's about being successful.
0: And when I interviewed Harry, he was actually the first podcast that I recorded and published. Um, He talked about when it comes to angling, and it's kind of fun to have you on the show kind of being the other side of this. He said that great anglers, it's kind of like a, a pie made up of a bunch of different slices. Some are small, some are big. But he said the thing that wins tournaments is not the big slices, but actually the small slices and I'd be curious to have you kind of dissect what are the different slices that make up a a great angler?
2: Yeah, and I would just want to articulate a little bit about the slices. So if you have a jigsaw puzzle of 2,500 pieces versus a jigsaw puzzle of 100, that's the assessment of a great angler. You have that many more gears you have to have a great angler's got incredible dexterity. I don't care where the fish is, which direction the wind is blowing, which direction the boat is pointed. You have got to have that fly in front of that fish right now. There, it's a, you got to have a backhand cast, a forehand cast. You have to know the distance. You have to have great vision so you can see, you know, and really assess where that fly's got to be, go, be going. And, and also, too, uh, great anglers— will bring something to the table um uh, let's just say with harry and i in the early years i didn't have all those tools and those little pieces that make a great angler he gave me those extra gears Uh and that's just one of the examples casting dexterity great vision where to look you know 10 o'clock 80 feet your eyes are right there you find the fish right now um I mean, that's just a couple of things. I mean, there are so many because um, I think you've got to be you know, a, great, a great caster and a great athlete and a great um, angler. You, you don't want to be rocking the boat when you cast. You have to be very, very stable because every time that boat rocks with a cast, you see some people rock from one foot to the other, the boat rocks and the fish, the fish feel that, that pressure through the water. Um, but it it just goes on and on but a great angler at some point will be equal to the guide and then as an angler I will I remember starting to see things a little bit different than Harry so Harry would bring a lot to the table then I brought a lot to the table and then I started bringing as an angler different things Uh, he would say like I remember one really um uh uh, very one very defining moment, uh, Harry said, you see that fish out there? He's facing the right. He's facing into the current, okay? Uh, let's just say he's 12 o'clock for, uh, just for the sake of this conversation. So the fish is laying out there, and I made this cast, and I saw the current, and I made this cast like 30 feet above where the fish was lying. And Harry goes, no, 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 real cast. Go to the fish. Go to the fish, you know, tighter. And I, I, I just tuned Harry out, and I just started – you know, watching the fish, and I saw where my fly was, and then right about when the fish, I knew my fly was there. I saw him, I saw the fish flare his gills, and I and I got the slack out and, and, and stuck this fish. He comes flying out of the water, and here he goes, great cast. You know, so as an angler, um, you've got to see things as equal as your guide. But when you get when you really have a lot of time on the bow and you're really out there a lot you start seeing things a little bit differently as an angler than a guide does as a guide, mm-hmm. I think.
0: Do you think that you can teach intuition?
2: Intuition comes, comes with, with uh, um, experience. You cannot teach intuition. Intuition comes from knowledge and experience. Like I could say, okay, if you're gonna make this, le- this left-hand turn around that corner, it's 80 miles an hour. You've got to make sure you do this. Well, unless you've made those turns at 40, 50, and 60, and 70 miles an hour, you're not really sure how you're going to make that turn at 80. It's the same thing in fishing. When you go, when you see a, a fish do something and in the, in the, in, 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 if the guide says nothing, what kind of instincts do you have if you've never done that before? Hmm. So once you start doing things, you can refine the things that you, that you previously saw and experienced. So intuition comes from miles, many, many miles.
0: And I'd love to hear both sides of this, but I'd love for you to take me back to when you first started bringing Nicky out at 13, 14. And what were some of the first things you wanted him to grasp? And Nicky, I'd love for you also after that just to share what were some of the biggest challenges you had to work through uh, when you first started getting into it.
2: Well, let's not forget the old adage, you can lead a, a horse to water, but you can't necessarily make it drink. I've got three, three sons, and only Nicky is the one that loves to elk hunt. He loves to do the things I love to do out on the ocean. Uh, so I'm very fortunate with that. And he had intuition as a, as a young child that he liked where I was. He liked to fish his house. He liked camping and hunting and doing all that kind of stuff. So initially the intuition was I kind of like that that environment. And when we first started fishing a lot, he loved playing with the mullet. He loved, you know, bait fishing, you know, rigging, the, rigging stuff, tying knots, teaching him how to tie knots. And I think that he, you know, was already an athlete. He was a great tennis player. Uh, he raced motorcycles when he was very young. The whole family did. He skied at a very young age, snowboarded, so he was an athlete uh, from the get-go. So his um, evolution to, to saltwater fly fishing was, I think, pretty, pretty fast because he was a great athlete. A lot of people are not athletes, and if you have an athlete,
1: you can teach them a
2: lot faster than you can someone that's not an athlete.
1: Yeah, and also, too, is that I had a great mentor you know, I had one of the best mentors there ever there ever was, in, in my eyes, um, when it comes to angling. And, um, you know, I thought, when I first started doing this, I thought I knew, you know, I knew what to do, but I learned very quickly that I knew nothing. And um, my biggest struggle was to stop, when I was casting, to stop that rod tip um, into the wind. And what I mean by that is when you, when you cast, if the wind's coming right out your face, you really got to stop that rod tip coming forward to unravel that leader and to shoot that line. And I had a really tough time doing that. I would drop the rod tip to the water, and I'd have a huge loop. The wind would get it. It would fold up and just land in a pile of slack. And, I mean, for for years I would do that, and my dad would just constantly just get on me about it, relentless, yell at me, oh, my God, beat me up. Hmm. And um, finally, you know, finally just – through time, uh, you know, I got it down and I caught, I think I caught my first tarpon on fly and when I was 13 in the back country of sugar, sugar loaf there. And, uh, I was hooked ever since. I mean, I, I, I vividly remember that, 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 that day we, I cast it into a, a ball of fish and this 70 pounder came up. Well, actually I cast it into this ball of fish and the bunch of slack and my dad's like okay all right just leave it just you know get your slack out keep stripping keep stripping i'm just stripping i don't know i'm not even wearing a hat you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. i'm just a 13 year old googan on the bow i didn't know what i was doing and i'm stripping my slack out i'm stripping my slack out and all of a sudden this big silver knife comes underwater and grabs my fly and i get tight and he jumps out of the jumps out of the water fly line wraps around my wrist and we're just yelling chaos going on and i broke him off but it was just you know, the camaraderie, just seeing that fish, my dad getting so excited, me getting so excited, just, you know, that experience is irreplaceable. And, uh, I wanted more of that. So, um, yeah, yeah, I totally, you understand. know, I, Hunter,
2: I re I, I remember that vividly. And the fact that, you know, he made this cast and again, we're talking about stopping the rod tip. And if you don't, yeah, that big loop, it landed a pile, and it was only like 30 feet from the boat. I'm thinking, there's no way this is going to work. But I had this total conviction, like, okay, Nikki, that's a great cast. Get the slack out. Okay, bump it. Bump, 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 bump. And I know nothing's going to happen, but I'm talking like it, like everything's <laughs> going to happen. And all of a sudden, he gets tight, and this fish comes flying out of the water like a Polaris missile. I'm
0: going, thank you, Lord. Those are just incredible memories. And, you know, it kind of circles back, though, to the conversation that you're talking about with great mentors and guides and honesty. You know, I I have the privilege of uh, continuing to be able to do outdoor pursuits with my dad. And uh, we have a turkey trip coming up that I'm really excited about. And we still get to fish a lot together. And some of my best memories in life have been memories in the woods and water with my dad. And one of the things that I look back and I'm really grateful for, I, I certainly didn't appreciate it always at the time, was the honesty. And I think when you're family with somebody, you know, it kind of gives you automatic pass to have that kind of honesty. And it, it really, uh, has helped me. And the, the older I get, the more I value that, not just in my father, but also in, in other, uh, relationships I have with mentors. I'm also curious to kind of pick your brain too, on a couple rapid fire questions. If, if we could kind of transition into that segment and, uh, I jokingly now call this my not-so-rapid-fire, um, and it's re- <laughs> it's really become uh, one of the most fun parts of, of the podcast for me. Um, so are you guys cool with that? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, no problem. Well, I saw that you guys uh, recently uh, came on with Traeger, and uh, I also am a part of Traeger, and uh, I love their grill, love using it. I'm curious, what is your favorite thing to smoke? Well, I, I
1: have one that's uh, it's basically – it's, it's a shank, whether it be an elk or a mule deer, but that's what I've used. Um, most people take that shank meat and add it to the grind pile for burger, right? But if you take that shank meat and you sear it on all sides and get a kind of a little bit of a crust and you throw it into a uh, slow cooker with a little broth, water, just a touch of vinegar mm. um, and seasonings, how you, how you like it, and you cook it for 10 hours, you make a little bit of polenta um, on the side, and you throw that shank on top of polenta. All that hard tissue, that hard muscle, that tendons, those tendons become gelatin, and it's just unbelievable. It's my favorite wild game dish out of the whole da- whole animal is the is the shank. Slow slow cooking the shanks, it's it's asabuco. You know, it's it's delicious. Mm. Some that's sounds- I do
2: all the eating in this family. Nikki does all the cooking.
0: <laughs> Well, that sounds incredible, so I'm definitely going to have to check that out next time. Um, One of the questions I had, too, was uh, in front of me, I have a copy of Passion for Tarpon. I've read through it several times, and it's obviously a really big project. There's a lot of articles and interviews in there. In in a lot of ways, it does kind of remind me of a podcast in certain parts. I'm, I'm wondering, when you were putting that together, what was the biggest challenge that you faced?
2: Doing it yeah i just say doing it i was i'm not a writer i was really in a bad place in my life at the time and i just And tom Perro, the publisher kept you know kept coming to me for two years you've got to write this book please 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 and i finally said okay i'll do it but it's going to be on my timetable uh if it's if you're on a you know time crunch whatever i'm i'm out and i it took about five years to put it together but as it turned out you know Uh, with that time it it gave you know I believe in the term marination and marination works in a lot of different ways whether you're cooking whether you're letting a fly marinate whether you're letting a tide marinate I love the word marinate a relationship uh, marinates Um, but the book marinated over those five years and initially I had no idea most writers have a beginning, a middle, and an end. I had no idea what the beginning was, little on the end. Mm. And the more I started thinking about it, the more I, I realized I was just a messenger. This book was about the fish. And I wanted the stories of the early innovators, I wanted their stories. This book needed their stories. Yes, I had won a lot of tournaments at this time, but. I did not want this book about me. So yeah, sure. I gave a lot of my methodology in the book. You know how I, it, how I should say how we win and catch fish because fishing tournaments it's a team sport. Harry taught me. He was he was my guy. And then it was Tammy Hoover, and I ended up winning fourteen tournaments with seven different guides. We won. So that book was about we, and I wanted, so I had the biology, uh, chapter, we had a history chapter of catching on fly, and I wanted all these captains to tell the story about the wins and the losses they had in innovating the sport, and all the great voices that are in there, Stu Apton, um, Steve Huff, you know, it just, it goes on and on, but, um, it's, we've actually sold 8,000 copies, which is a lot of copies for a fishing book that costs a hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're totally out of books right now. So in, unless Tom Perrow goes back and has more published, we're out. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's, it's a book that I think a lot of people will enjoy because it's not a arduous read. A lot of it's fun with the storytelling. A lot of it is informative about learning and it covers the spectrum. And, um, you know, it won four national awards. You know, so in that regard, the peers uh, told me it was a good book, and we sold a lot. So I'm pretty proud of it.
0: Yeah, uh, I think it's a a really fun book, and I really appreciated how it kind of looked at a lot of different aspects of it. You know, you mentioned uh, having kind of a real look at guides and some of the losses and challenges that they experienced. I'd be curious. Uh, what advice would you give to people who have tr- or who are trying to learn from a loss or work through discouragement when it comes to angling? Just keep at it. You know, I, I you know, I
2: like it, You know, you win some and you lose some, like, and that's just life. And if you like what you're doing, you're going to keep doing it. But just, just trust your guides. Uh, trust yourself. And if you're failing, you know, try to figure out where, where are you failing and why are you failing and try to work through that process. Hmm. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of people don't have the money to fish a lot. And that's really discouraging because every time they fish for that one particular week every year, they get back on the water. They've waited the entire year for that one week. And if you've got bad weather, you're limited as to what kind of success you're going to have. And even if you you know if you don't if you haven't had a chance to catch a lot of fish you hook that hundred pound fish and if you don't know how to pull more likely than not you're going to lose that fish just because you're not pulling hard enough so the dynamics of a steep learning curve are very difficult unless you have some money to spend and be on the water a lot Mm. but at least the people who are out there for that one week a year they can do themselves a huge favor by learning how to cast on both sides of their body and learning how to cast into the wind, into sidewinds, crosswinds. So when they get out there, they, at least they have a chance of getting the fly in the right spot. Mm-hmm. And I've had friends of mine, you know, beg me to take them tarpon fishing. And I've, I've flat out told a couple of them because they're not really close friends of mine. I said, okay, look, we are not fishing. Because they kept bugging me. I'll tell you why. I said, you're going to come to the Keys. And I'm going to push my boat for 10 to 12 hours a day to find you a fish that you most likely won't be able to see, and if you do, you're not going to be able to get the fly to it. You're going to come back to my house. I'm going to cook you dinner, and then a week later you're going to leave. What's in it for me? <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know. But other friends, I've, I, I, friends that I really like, they want to come, and I cherish my time with Nikki. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to share my time with him. Mm. But we've had had a, a few friends that come down, and that's what they don't. They can't get the fly to the fish.
1: Hmm. and so
2: so if you're if you're one of those anglers out there that want to get better you can do yourself a huge favor by learning how to how to have great dexterity with your casting you know forehand backhand into the wind side wind all of that
0: well before you get out on the ocean do you have any tips for that on how people can practice tips or or what types of things can people do to try to improve
2: look at some videos look at the internet try to figure out I mean I could I could tell you right now but it would take way too long but there are a lot of ways to to to, you know casting low you know a a good low sidearm cast keeps the fly you know out of the wind and a really tight loop will penetrate into the wind and when you make a backhand cast your hand you know you angle (coughs) excuse me a right-handed caster's got to you know open the left side of his body and the butt of the fly rod has got to be butted up against the bottom side of your forearm. So when you make that forehand, or that backhand cast, you're leading with your arm, and the rod is behind your forearm, and it's got leverage uh, butted up and leveraged against your forearm. Because otherwise, if you have an open hand on your backhand cast, you don't have the power to push a 10,
1: 11, or 12 weight rod. Hmm. So yeah. it's, it's, it's pretty technical. And also, too, uh, just a quick little tip. Um, Most people think that they have to stand on the casting platform throughout the day, which is fine. But I stand on the casting platform until I see the fish. And if it's really windy and we have a head-on wind, I'll stand on that casting platform until I see the fish. Then I'll get down on the bow of the boat, which essentially lowers you a foot, foot and a half, so you're closer to the water. And then you make that sidearm cast. That wind is not going to get you you know, as bad as if you're standing on a foot platform and you're making your normal cast. So it's just, you know, just be detail oriented. You know what I mean? So if if your fly your fly line's sticking, you're not casting as well. Or um, you know, clean your fly line. If you if you, the hook looks a little rusted or the hook looks a little dull, take the time and sharpen your hook. Like all these little things are very important. And you know. they're very important. You just, you can't take anything for granted. You got to be very detail oriented and, um, think about, think about every situation possible. Mm. And Nikki, my next kind of rapid fire is for you. Um, a lot
0: of fathers, myself included, really desire for our children to grow up with an appreciation of the outdoors. And we also want to help them be able to not just understand how big of a treasure that is, but also to have the tools they need to be successful. But at the same time, it's really easy to, uh, get pushed away. And I'm sure that having your dad be, you know, Andy, uh, had some, some pretty intense moments, as you mentioned before. And, uh, I'm sure that there was a lot of, uh, tension that you probably have worked through over the years, but I'm curious, like for a parent listening, what are things that a parent can do to try to help not push their kid away um, through, through instruction?
1: Hmm. Um, Not push their kid away through instruction.
2: You know, one of the things, uh, if you don't mind me jumping in here, you can only push as hard as that child is willing to accept that, information and 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 that pushing if you will i could have never pushed Nikki as hard as i did uh, as his father if i didn't think that he could handle it and he was ready for it because he was insatiable for fishing he loved fishing so th- in that regard i could lean a little harder on him because i knew it was going to be okay but if that child is sensitive then you have to walk with tender feet mm.
1: yeah and it, it also goes to how big your passion is for that specific sport, or um, um, you know, how big your passion is for that for whatever you're doing. So, even if you totally crushed me, Dad, totally crushed me, and you made me cry every day, I'd still be out there because I had such, I had I had a burning desire to be out there with the mm-hmm. fish and their home and watch them swim. So it's, you know, it, it, I think it goes to how how much you really appreciate um, what you're doing and how big your passion is for it. Hmm. That's good. That's and helpful. let it
2: be known. I only made him cry
1: once, hmm. <laughs> uh, like 47 times. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, a- another thing I had a question about when I was listening to the April Voki podcast with you, you were talking about testing gear on, um, spinner sharks. And, uh, I thought that was really interesting. and made a lot of sense. I'd be curious you know, it can be very overwhelming when you're trying to select what gear to use and there's all different price points and it, it can be overwhelming, especially to new anglers. What advice would you give to people when it comes to picking out gear and figuring out what stuff they really need? Well,
2: for a reel, there's, there's two primary uh, things that I look for. If you take a, a tarpon reel and you false cast it with the reel in your hand. And if that handle spins, when you stop that forehand cast, that's called reel creep, okay? So if you have, say, three or four shots at fish and you're false casting a number of times for each fish, if that handle is spinning when you're false casting, it's collecting fly line. Now, when you go to make a shot that might be a 70-foot shot, you make that cast and the fly line is going to get out there about 50 feet, hit the end and come bouncing straight back at you. Hmm. There are a lot of great and very well-known names in the industry. And I don't want to say anything about who they are because I know them very well. I work with Hardy with building our rods and reels. Um, So I don't want to poo poo anybody out there, but this is, this is one of the things to look for. The other one is, I do not fight fish with a drag setting. I have a minimum drag. I've got like 5 pounds of drag. But I've learned from pulling on scales how much 12 pounds of resistance is. So when I fight my fish, I'm hanging on to my fly line. Because you don't want a 100-pound fish to jump out of the water and fall against a really tight drag setting like 10 or 12 pounds. Let's not forget a 100-pound fish in the water might weigh 8% of its total weight, 10%. So that 100-pound fish weighs 10 pounds, but when he jumps out of the water, that 10-pound fish is now 100. And if he falls against a, a real tight drag setting, you're going to break a tippet or you could pull hooks. So I, Harry taught me how to, how to pull on fish by using the fly line, hanging on the fly line and bending the rod at the base of the rod. Hmm. But if you are somebody that likes to use a drag setting, it's very important to buy a reel that goes from zero drag setting to 100% in one revolution. Hmm. Because if the drag setting spins a number of times to gain perch or to gain resistance, you'd never know where you really are. So if you were to take a saltwater reel, you want to go tarpon fishing, and if you use drag... You put a a scale on the end of your your hook or something, and you set the drag. start increasing your drag until the scale goes to 5 pounds. When it gets to 5 pounds, you put a mark on the top of your drag knob, and you put a mark on the back wall of the reel. That way, when you look down, if you align those two marks, you know your drag is at 5 pounds. Mm. Now you continue to the drag setting. Increase your drag until it gets to be 8 pounds. You put a second mark in the back of your, your reel wall. Now you do it one more time and you get to 10 pounds and mark it there. You have three marks on the back of the wall of your reel, 5, 8, and 10. Those are the only three marks you need. So when you first start fishing, you have your reel set at 5. You hook a big tarp and he starts to race offshore, not jumping, just racing, running. And if you want to slow him down, you can just reach down and when you turn that mark uh to the second setting eight pounds it's going to slow that fish down and then you fight your fish you get you close in on the fish with the boat and i never pull hard until i get up to the fat part of the fly line because if you try to pull with the fly line out of your rod and you have backing all you're doing is stretching your your fly line um you cannot really fight a fish until you get into the close quarters Mm. So you close the boat, get the fat part of the fly line. Now, if your hands are getting tired or if, or some women, you know, don't have the strength in their hands to hang onto the fly line, and then if you want to increase your drag setting to, say, maybe 10 pounds when he's close to the boat, remember later in the fight, these fish are not that energetic. You know, they jump very lethargically. So then you can get away with a heavier drag setting when they're later in the fight when they're closer to the boat. Mm. But that's the second element about um, – a prerequisite i have in in finding a, a reel that works you go to false cast that reel if that handle spins that's real creep stay away from that reel if you find a drag knob that spins a number of times to increase drag setting you have no idea you're setting a drag with just feel i'm a numbers guy when i fight a fish i want i want to be able to, to fight that fish at 12 or 13 pounds and that's why i pull on scales i want to know what that feels like in my hands Look, Stu Apt and all these guys knew exactly what 12 pounds of pressure was because when they were fishing 12-pound test tippet, they were catching a lot of fish, and they were breaking a lot of fish off. So they learned what that breaking point was by breaking fish off. In today's world, the fish are so sophisticated, you're lucky to get one on. So we need to do a lot of homework at home so that when you get on the water, you're ready to catch that fish, and you can be efficient at actually catching that fish. Hmm. You understand what, you know, drag is. So most If somebody were to say pull harder, what would the average angler do? He'd lean back and bend the rod more. Well, in that scenario, all you're doing is bending the tip and there's no resistance on the fish. So as an angler, we have to understand if we're going to go saltwater, big game fishing, we have to know how to fight fish, what part of the rod to use, and what does pulling hard mean. I tell Nikki, I say, okay, you know, put twelve pounds of pressure on the fish. He knows exactly what twelve pounds is gonna be. Hmm. So that's just an example of, of how I think.
1: Yeah, that's really yeah, helpful. You, you, I was gonna say, yeah, if you wanna be successful in anything, you gotta work hard at it. And people think that they can just go down to the keys or wherever they the destination is and go fishing and be successful, which is not always the case, you know. You gotta do your homework and you gotta um, you gotta practice. Hmm. Yeah, and that's definitely that athlete mindset to put
0: in the time and to, to put in the work like that. I, I was curious, too, you know, over the years, there has been a lot of change in the outdoor industry. Um, Andy, what have been some of the negative changes that you've seen in the outdoor industry? And what have been some of the things that you experienced back when you first got started that you've tried to instill in, in your son? You know,
2: I, I kind of look at life a little bit differently than most people. A lot of guys are dour because of, look. I I grew up in Aspen since nineteen sixty. A lot of people think it's you know it's the rich and the famous and the Gucci and the this and it's crowded and it's expensive. But and and I look at the the oceans down and in, 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 around the world. It's it's really crowded. The fish are really pressured. Uh, it's it's harder. It's crowded. Um, you know, aside from pollution, and we, and that's kind of obvious. I don't even want to talk about that. But as far as the Lower Keys, look, if you do your homework and you fish a lot, you can still catch fish readily. You can still be really good and efficient, and productive. Um, and I see boats every day down there. They're all around us. And I, and I can't fix that. I can't change that. So I don't allow my mind to go there, and I don't. I don't gravitate back to the good old days when we had this and the fish were easy and there were plentiful. I enjoy what I have on a daily basis. Mm. I, I really try to go there. Um, I'm older now and it's frustrating to do the stuff that I do, but but I'm not gonna give up. I mean I'm still gonna try to get into the high country and kill stuff and I fall every time I go fishing I fall in the river and I break crap. I broke a rod three days ago, I slammed it in the door, broke a reel two days ago but that's that's the life of an old guy you know but i'm living and and i enjoy every minute of it but you know like elk hunting there's so many hunters out there public land hunting there are so few animals and it's either you know work harder walk deeper experience more pain and that's what it's going to take to be successful pain or give up just stop go do something else Mm. But I love the outdoors. I'm always going to look at the, at the good side of it. I get aggravated once in a while, but
0: I don't allow my mind to stay there very long. That's helpful. Another question I had was one of the things I first noticed when I got a copy of your book was that you had a, a uh, special forward by President George Bush I was curious. I know that you guys traveled and fished together for over 20 years. What was your favorite memory with, with, uh, President Bush?
2: I would say his humor. You know, he was so, he was such a friend. You know, I remember the first time I met him, I was so nervous and he put his arm around me right away. I mean, he loved Chrissy and, um, you know, he just embraced, embraced me. And, and he was a golfer and a fisherman and, And um, we went to the White House. He invited Chrissy to the White House to play tennis with Pam Shriver, and I first met him there. And then shortly after that, we were playing golf, and we were invited to Kenny Bunkport, and we'd go striper fishing out on his boat. And we were always trying to race from the Secret Service. He loved doing that. Uh, You know, he was a prankster. Um, We'd go play golf, and he just loved life. You know, I mean, I had some unbelievable fishing trips with him. He invited me one time. He said, have you ever caught a rooster fish? I said, yeah, yeah, I, I have. He said, you want to you wanna go to Panama? I said, yeah. So we flew to Panama and picked up the president of Panama, mm. jumped in three military helicopters, and went down to the island of Coiba, and went rooster fishing for three days. Now we have the National Guard of the, the Panamanian Army, uh, President Bush's Secret Service, and we had uh, Carlos Slim's mothership waiting for us and three other offshore boats, and thank God President Bush is the guy who caught the only rooster fish, because <laughs> <laughs> you can only imagine what that one fish cost. Yeah, and but well, no every pressure. day. Yeah, but every day you were just hanging with a good friend, and you didn't. You kind of it was like a second thought that he was the most powerful man in the world.
1: You know, the presidency was it was so secondary when when we were together fishing. Hmm. Didn't he knock? Didn't he come to your door and knock on your door in the middle of the night and said, "Hey, oh, you want to shoot skeet?"
2: Yeah, this is, this is a great story. So he called, and he was giving a speech in Aspen with Margaret Thatcher. And I think it was, I can't remember when it was, 94 or something. And Margaret Thatcher's daughter uh, co-wrote uh, Chris, Chrissy's book. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. So when we used to go to Wimbledon, when she was playing Wimbledon, we'd go over to 10 Downing Street and have dinner with Margaret Thatcher. So they were coming to Aspen, and President Bush calls from Washington, and uh, he said, "Hey, we're going to give a speech, Maggie, and I, next week. You want to come to dinner?" He's, "Of course, we'd love to." We hang up. He calls back ten minutes later. He goes, "Hey, what are you doing for the weekend?" I said, "What do you want to do?" He said, "Well, let's fly back to Washington and Air Force One. We'll jump on the helicopter and go to Camp David for the weekend." And it's like, "Yeah, we're in," you know. Hmm. So that following Thursday, Christy and I are flying back from Canada on a private plane. and We get a call from uh, Washington. They called the office and the dispatch from the uh, the private plane service, you know, patched us in and Patty Prezog, his assistant uh, informed us that he could not spend the night in Aspen because Kuwait has been invaded. So he's only going to give the speech and turn around and go back to Washington. But he invited us to turn our plane around and, and come to Washington and, the White House would pick us up. So we go to the White House and the next morning, you know, about 10 o'clock, we hear President Bush coming down the hall. And and of course he let us stay in the Lincoln room. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the perks of hanging out at the White House with the Prez. But anyway, we could hear him walking down the hall yelling, Andy, Chrissy, where are you? And uh, we meet up. He said, come down at three, we want you to meet all the players. And uh, that was on a Friday. The next day there was a mini summit uh, at Camp David and then Sunday morning, there was a knock on our cabin door, and I went to open the door. And, and he opened it about six inches, and here's his face. He goes, hey, I can't, I can't sleep. You want to go shoot some skeet? <laughs> so we go shoot some skeet, and we go to breakfast, and Chrissy's not feeling well. So I'm at breakfast with President Bush and Doro, and he never liked to talk politics and shop. But on, on this occasion, I, I, just, I had to throw one over the net and see where it was going to go. I said, what's your biggest fear with Saddam Hussein? He said, my biggest fear is, is that you cannot communicate with him. You can't negotiate with him. And we've got to get him out of Kuwait. My biggest fear is that we're going to go to war. Hmm. And he said, but if we do it, we're going to do it quickly. We're going to do it right. And with a coalition of 32 countries, obviously the record shows that they removed him from, from Kuwait in 44 days. Hmm. But as, a, as a, just a skier and a hunter and a friend, I mean, all of a sudden there I was at Camp David listening you know, to the president of this country talking about going to war before anybody knew it.
0: Hmm. That's a—that's an oh my God pinch me moment. Yeah. Wow. My last question is, you know, obviously one of the things that really got me excited for this podcast was the father-son relationship. Um, Nikki, I would love for you to to just share any advice or any encouragement that you would give to young men who get the opportunity to, to pursue fish and animals in the outdoor world. And then, um, Andy, I'd love for you to close with any advice or any encouragement that you could give to, to the fathers who are trying to do the same. Okay.
1: All I would say was, all I would say is, give it a shot. Give it a try. Um, I have two brothers and both my brothers are not in the outdoors. They don't like to go fishing. They don't like to go hunting. They don't like to get their hands dirty. Um, uh, but that's okay. Um, as long as they tried, you know, as long as they had the experience of going out and distinguishing from them from themselves, you know what, this is not for me. That- that's fine. But I would just say, you know, if, if you are not, prominent in the outdoors, just, just give it a shot, go out there and, you know, put a, put a worm on a hook, go out there and start hiking around, just, you know, just get outside, start hiking the mountain, Um, go down to the river, just, just, you know, immerse yourself in it, and if you don't like it, you don't like it, but at least you tried, and Mm. it just drives me nuts, because I have many friends um, that aren't in the outdoors, and, you know, don't have any passions in the, in the outdoors, but they never gave it a shot. It's like, come on. So I would just say, you know, just give it a shot. Mm.
2: And as a father, for me, it was really important for us just to have fun. So people ask me, so why are your kids snowboarders and not skiers? It's like, I don't care. They, they have fun on a snowboard. Let's just go enjoy life. And we would got, you know, they got into motorcycles. They played tennis. Um, as, as a father, I want to lead them a little bit, but if they want to go in a different direction, I'm all in. I'm, I'm fine with that. I just want to make sure that I'm a father, and I'm going to support them with whatever, whatever they love and whatever they want to do. Uh, I'm not going to push them like I did Nikki because Nikki was ready at that time. But as a father in general... It's just like, let's just go have fun as a family and see where we go, hmm. see where we end up.
1: But you never pushed me. I don't want to clarify that. <laughs> I enjoyed the outdoors because I was hanging out with you, and, and I love, you know, to be your wingman. And I gravitated toward the towards the outdoors because of you. And then you started pushing me a little bit when I started, you know, getting more serious about it and wanting to be more successful. Then you started pushing me, but you didn't push me from the get-go by, by any means. No, I just knew that that's what you were leaning toward, and you liked it. And I didn't
2: start pushing until I realized you really liked it, and then I knew that we could get better really fast.
1: Mm -hmm. Right.
0: Well, it's uh, been great to hang out with you guys and just discuss these different things, and I hope that if anybody's not listening to the Millhouse podcast that they'll go give it a shot and learn more from some of the legends of the sport. But I I really want to thank you guys for giving us some time today and coming on the podcast
2: oh we're we're honored and privileged that you asked us uh our pleasure and you too you're doing a great job and we follow you and everybody that's out there that uh that likes a good fishing story um we've got some well <laughs> no awesome. house has got a, some of the legends for sure but well, but
1: thanks for pro- promoting uh you know our podcast hunter we really appreciate it yeah yeah I, thanks hunter absolutely. i'm a big fan and um know some of your guests pretty well and love what you do and the stories you're capturing so keep up the good work well next time you guys also also
2: 200 before we leave uh give give harry a big old hug for me tell him i love him
0: absolutely uh that's what i was going to say was next time you're in the area we'll you know have to all get together and have a beer with harry he would love that but thank you guys so much for the time today our pleasure thanks hunter thanks Thanks again for listening to The Captain's Collective. Please help us out by leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast. We hope that you enjoy. This is The Captain's Collective.